On May 22nd, 2011, a common Midwest storm began to move its way through Missouri. And as it began to pick up strength and gain strength, meteorologists started to become concerned. And they issued a tornado warning for towns that were in the storm's immediate path. Particularly, they began warning residents of the city of Joplin, Missouri, of the potential danger that was on its way. So even as the storm closed in, the the sirens sounded and broadcasts were put out on the internet, on TV, on the radio. But sadly, most of Joplin's residents were casual about the threat. They had seen tornado warnings come and tornado warnings go. Most of the residents did not immediately take shelter. But the storm did come. The tornado did come. Tragically, 158 people lost their lives. Most of them because they did not seek shelter. According to social scientists, this is a common response. It's widely known that at the first sign of danger, most of us don't run for shelter. Most of us pull out our phones or go online or turn on the TV to see for ourselves if in fact the danger is real or if it's overblown. Essentially what social scientists tell us is that in the moment when we hear of a warning of an impending storm, most of us become armchair meteorological experts. And even with advanced warnings, sociologists tell us that people don't often seek shelter until they feel that the danger is personal. People don't often seek shelter until they feel that the danger is personal. If you've been here very long, you know that we are working our way through the book of Luke one section at a time. We start one week and where we end that week, we pick up the next week and so we're making our way through and we've landed here in Luke 17 this morning. And I would submit to you this morning that Jesus is point or his purpose for us is to see the danger of an eternity apart from him and that we would see that that danger of an eternity apart from him is in fact very, very personal. He is showing his followers and he is showing all who will listen, including us, that there is a day coming when he will return, when he will judge the world. And on that day, there will be an eternal separation from those who spend an eternity with him in the new creation and those who will spend an eternity apart from him in hell. So in these verses, Jesus is functioning like that warning siren, alerting us that something is coming. The siren that tells us to get ready, to get prepared, to do what we need to do now for what will come next. And all of that begins with a question. 
It's a question that the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, ask of Jesus. And it's a question that Jesus responds to. Look at verse 20. The word of the Lord says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. For hundreds of years, God had been predicting that the day was coming when he would establish a new kingdom on earth. There would be a new king, a Messiah, that would jumpstart this kingdom. And that in this new kingdom, justice would reign. And there would be peace. And the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire would end forever. And this new king, this new liberating Messiah, would defeat God's enemies and rescue God's people and reign on the throne forever. And the Pharisees knew all of this. And so when they heard Jesus teaching and preaching and when they saw his miracles and when they noticed the people flocking to Jesus wondering if in fact he is the Messiah, the Pharisees respond by asking this question. Hey Jesus, when will this kingdom of God come? Now this could be an honest question. If we give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt, They really want to know, tell us, Jesus, when will the kingdom come? However, by this point in Jesus' ministry, we know that the Pharisees generally, by and large, not all of them, but most of them, want Jesus eliminated. Their, Their curiosity, their jealousy has turned to hostility and anger, and they are doing whatever they can to discredit him, and soon will have him executed. And so it's likely that they are mocking Jesus here. Like, sure, Jesus teaches with authority, and he does some miracles, but it doesn't look to us like we're any closer to overthrowing the Romans than than we were before Jesus. And Jewish political power still seems weak, and Jesus really is not attracting to himself the kind of people that the Messiah would, since the Messiah is going to overthrow the Roman Empire and the government and the military and establish a new kingdom. That The Messiah ought to be attracting to himself the powerful and the wealthy and the rich and the upwardly mobile. Yet Jesus' followers also include just as many outsiders just as many of the poor and the marginalized and the uninfluential. And so this could be a dig. Like, so when's this Messiah, or when's this kingdom coming, Messiah? Like, if you're really the Messiah, because there's no evidence. But regardless of their motivation, Jesus' words here are the same. The kingdom of God, he says, is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God, which is God's rule and God's reign over and through his people, is not out there, Jesus said. It's already here. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, has already arrived. And if the Pharisees had been listening at all to Jesus' ministry or his messages, they would have already known this. 
because one of Jesus' most repeated phrases or most um, common themes in his teaching and preaching was that the kingdom of God has come, so repent and believe in the gospel. In fact, Mark chapter 1 verse 14 nicely summarizes this. When at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, which will become kind of the thesis of all of his earthly ministry, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The Jews were looking for the kingdom of God. They were looking for the kingdom to come. But Jesus is clear that the kingdom has already arrived. The kingdom has come because the kingdom of God begins with the Son of God. And that's why Jesus says to these Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Because Jesus was in their midst. So even today, when we think about the kingdom of God, God's reign over and through his people in the world, it's important that we see that this kingdom is an already kingdom. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, let me just encourage you to write down, the kingdom is an already kingdom. We are not merely waiting for the kingdom to arrive as though it's not arrived. It's already come. Jesus tells us that. Because Jesus has come. And the kingdom comes to more and more people through the quiet transformation of one person after another. Like whenever someone's eyes are open for the first time to see their sin and to see their need for a savior, and whenever someone's heart is softened to turn and to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin, that person is brought into the kingdom of God. So Jesus is clear at this point In human history, as he is speaking to these Pharisees, as well as at this point in 2023, the kingdom of God does not come at the edge of the sword. God's kingdom does not come through political means. It comes through the quiet transformation of one life after another life after another life. This is one of the reasons why We do child dedication. We do not believe, as Pastor Nick made clear, that someone dedicating their child means that their child is now a Christian or is guaranteed to become a Christian. But it's simply an acknowledgement before God and before the people of God that God has provided this gift that has come from him. And it's an affirmation that as parents we desire to steward our parental responsibilities not only so that our kids are protected physically and provided for and have have physical nourishment, but that they even more importantly are nourished spiritually. That they hear the gospel as we walk along the way and as we sit down and as we rise up around dinner tables in good times and in bad, that they see the Christian life pattern for them in faithful joy. Because we believe 
that more and more come into the kingdom of God through the quiet transformation of one life after another who turn and trust in Jesus. And so the kingdom is an already kingdom. It's an already reality. But this morning, if you're sitting there and you're especially savvy, which is the vast majority of you this morning, you are probably thinking, but wait, what about all of the promises in the Bible about what the kingdom of God will be like? Things that don't look anything like our world now. For example, God's kingdom will be a time of peace and a time of universal worship as all creation celebrates God. And it will be a time where the wicked will be banished and all creation will be restored to its sinless glory. And I don't know about you, but we don't see any of that going on right now. What about that? That's a really good question. That's why it's really good you were thinking that. Because those are the realities that the Bible gives us as well when describing the kingdom of God. Like those are all precious promises that we have from the Lord that we can take to heart in good times and in bad. That we can set our hope on those promises that the best is always yet to come for the Christian. So how do we reconcile that with Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is in your midst? It's it's already arrived. Well, here's something important to remember. You may want to jot this down. The kingdom of God does not come all at once. This is something the Jews didn't understand at first. The Pharisees didn't understand at first. No one understood at first. They saw the promises of the kingdom of God coming like we, maybe when you're driving west through the great plains of Kansas, look out and see The mountains, the Rocky Mountains off in the distance. And to us, it looks like one singular mountain range. That's how they thought about the kingdom of God to come. And yet, if you're driving west from Kansas and you, you get to Denver and you begin to drive into Boulder, you begin to realize that it's not just one singular mountain range. There's range after range after range after range. It begins to unfold And Jesus makes this clear, even in our text, that the kingdom of God is both a present reality, it's an already reality, and it's not yet fully arrived, which is what theologians call the already and the not yet of the kingdom. Let me use another metaphor. Say you get up in the morning, and you're trying to decide, like, I want to go jogging outside, but I really don't want to go till it's light. How do you know when it's light? Do you wait until the sun is visible off on the horizon? Or do you, do you just go when it begins to get light? And like how, if you were to describe that to someone else, how would you describe the in-between? Like, well, it's light, but it, the sun's not up. Well, it's kind of light. It's really light. It's a little bit light. Like, do I go if I can just see the trees and the outline of the house across the street? Or do I wait until it, the sun is almost to rise? In the same way... The kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is like like the warmth of the sun. We feel the warmth of the sun. We know that the sun is just about to break the horizon. We feel its warmth. We see the effects of it. It's getting brighter. It, It has arrived. It is light. And yet the fullness of the sun has not yet arrived. 
Jesus says the kingdom has come. It has come through Jesus Christ. And we are urged to enter into the kingdom by repenting of our sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there is more yet to come. The benefits and the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom are a not yet reality. Like we're still waiting for how things will be when Jesus comes back when he does ultimately put an end to sin and the enemies of God and when he does reign decisively and completely forever those are the not yet parts of God's kingdom and that seems to be in this text as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and now in verse 22 as he turns to his disciples, the not yet part of the kingdom seems to occupy his primary concern. Look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so Jesus now turns from the Pharisees to his disciples, to his followers, to those who who believe and are trusting in him. And again, notice the context now is the not yet of the kingdom. It's the what is yet to come. Fullness of all of that is now what Jesus is going to talk about. And notice again, the first thing is that this kingdom will not come right away. Jesus has just told the Pharisees that the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is here. And yet he turns to his disciples now and he says, there is a day coming when you're going to long for the fullness of that kingdom and you're not going to see it yet. And that extends to us today as well. Just as the disciples longed to see it and did not see it yet, we, as of 1139, are longing to see the fullness of the kingdom and have not yet seen it. We may see it at 1140. Or 1202. We have not yet seen it. The days of the Son of Man there, in fact, are a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that refer really to the Messiah to come and his kingdom authority that he will be given by the Father. I would encourage you just to jot down Daniel 7, go back and revisit that this afternoon. But Jesus is telling them, hey, you will want to experience the fullness of the kingdom. And that's a good desire. That is a good longing, both then for them and us today, that we would long for the fullness of the kingdom. He says, but, but it won't come yet. It's not going to come all at once. So don't get led astray. Don't become distracted by those who will come and try to tell you that they are the Messiah or that the Messiah has already arrived. Verse 23, they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them for... Or because as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Like don't go out looking and searching. Don't jump online worried, afraid. Maybe the Messiah has come back. Maybe he's here and I don't know it yet. 
it will be obvious. Jesus' return and the fullness of his coming kingdom will not come secretly or be hidden. It will come dramatically and visibly. Now, I don't know that too many of us are tempted to go follow someone who claiming to be the Messiah who has returned. And if you're like, does anyone ever do that? I mean, people claiming all the time. Just go online. You see all kinds of wacky people who are claiming to be the Messiah who are on earth living right now. Don't do it right now. Don't search right now. <laughs> do it later. But I don't know that too many of us are tempted in that way to follow after people who claim to be the Messiah. But I, I think that that some of us might be tempted to worry about missing his return when it happens. But according to Jesus, that won't be possible. Just like we can see lightning fill the sky from one side to the other, it completely fills the sky. Jesus' return will be completely obvious. But here's something helpful to set our expectations Jesus says, before the fullness of the kingdom comes, there will be a cross. And we know now as we look back on Jesus' life and ministry on earth that there was a cross. Verse 25, but first, he, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The cross before the crown. Suffering precedes glory. Jesus says that his death is necessary. He said he must suffer for the kingdom to arrive. Because Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death is mandated by the Father as the path to glory as he saves a people for himself. While at the same time upholding his justice towards those who have rebelled. In fact, Jesus would say the same thing after his resurrection in Luke 24, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and then enter into his glory. It was necessary because the wages of sin is death. The Bible is crystal clear that all of us, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, have chosen to sin, have chosen to go our own way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chosen to side with the rebellious enemy of God rather than honoring and submitting to God. We've inherited that from our first parents. And therefore, we rightly, justly, fairly deserve eternal separation from God. We, we deserve the wrath of God that is poured out on those who sin. And yet God, in in unparalleled grace, provided his own son, God the Son, to enter into our world and to live without sin and to willingly go to the cross and to die as a substitute for sinners. And because he didn't sin, he wasn't dying for his own sin, he was dying for the sin of all who believe and all who trust by faith in him. And he died because he is God and justice, the justice of God must be upheld. 
And yet, he was raised back to life. He came back to life, God in the flesh, three days later. Defeating sin, defeating death, showing us that God and Satan, life and death, are not two opposing forces that are locked in mortal combat for all time, but rather that God triumphs even over death and even over the grave and even over his enemies. And showing us that all who trust by faith in Jesus Christ have that kind of eternal hope of a forever eternity with Jesus Christ where our sins are forgiven and forever we are adopted into his glorious family by faith. And yet for those of us who follow Jesus today, the cross still comes before the crown. We're still called to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow him. And this is where I think some in the the prosperity gospel movement are typically, not always, but typically right on substance and dead wrong on timing. We are promised health, and we are promised an end to suffering from the Lord. We have all kinds of glorious promises that God gives to us as his children. But we are not promised those things right now. We are promised those things in eternity, in the not yet of the kingdom. And Jesus is clear throughout his ministry that in the already of the kingdom, where we live right now, we will have suffering and we will have sorrow. But we are to take heart because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Now, if we were to stop right here, we would have the truth that God's kingdom has come and is here now, and it's come through Jesus, and in Jesus, it is an already kingdom. And secondly, we would see that there is so much more to the kingdom that we are waiting for, which is the not yet kingdom, the kingdom that will be a reality when Jesus Christ returns. If you've read the text, if you were following along as Sean read it for us a few minutes ago, you know that Jesus doesn't stop there. Like These two truths about the already and the not yet of the kingdom are realities that we need to know, but Jesus moves past what we simply need to know, and he moves to the heart of how we should respond, like what this truth should do in us. And to put it another way, Jesus doesn't just explain reality. He also warns about what that reality will mean for all humanity. He gives us at least three warnings in these verses that follow. Verses 26 through 37. First, he gives us a warning about expectation. A warning about expectation. We should expect Christ to return At an unexpected time. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus here uses two examples to show that we should expect him to return at an unexpected time. He uses Lot and Noah. You might remember Noah. Noah was a righteous man who lived in a day and time where the, the inclination and the desires and the thoughts of the, of the people's heart was only evil all the time, the Bible tells us. And yet Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And God comes to Noah with two words, with a word of warning and with a word of hope, a word of shelter. He warns Noah that he is about to destroy all creation, all life because of sin. And just as a reminder, God is completely just and right to do so. When his creation rebels against him as the creator, that's his prerogative. But he also comes with a word of shelter, a word of gracious hope. He gives instructions to Noah about this ark, this boat-like structure that Noah is to build through which he and those who enter the ark by faith will be saved. In a similar way, the Bible tells us that Lot lived in a city where the people were incredibly wicked. And God comes to Lot with two words, a word of warning. God is about to destroy this city and a word of hope, a word of shelter. Flee from the destruction that is to come before it's too late. And tragically, even after Lot warned his sons-in-law of the, of the coming judgment, Genesis 19.14 says that they thought he was just fooling around, just joking with them. They, they took it as a joke, as some sort of like late-night television comedy. Ah, oh, have you heard? Like, we're all going to hell. Isn't that funny? In other news, here's the point of both of those examples. In both Noah's time and in Lot's time, the people were going about their normal routines when God's judgment came. Like no one listened to the warnings, very few I should say, listened to the warnings and the judgment came unexpectedly. Very few responded to the siren of God's warning about the judgment to come and actually took the prescribed precautions. And Jesus said it will be the same when he returns to inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom. Some will be picking up groceries. Some will be mowing the lawn. Others will be answering email. Some will be watching sports and HGTV. And some will be studying for exams. And some will be driving cars. And, and he will return unexpectedly. It's interesting here that Jesus' main point, even though we know from Scripture the wickedness in Noah's day and in Lot's day, but Jesus' point here isn't even the overt wickedness of the people in Noah's day and Lot's day. In fact, he doesn't even mention that. I find that fascinating. Instead, he points out their indifference, their thoughtlessness. Their lack of concern about eternity because they were so consumed with the immediate. That's easy to do, isn't it? 
In fact, even this morning, some of you who are here and, and are not, you walked in not trusting, not following the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you've heard the songs, you've heard the prayers, you've heard the scripture reading, heard the message. Maybe even as Sean was reading the text, you're like, oh man. As you're checking, what time do I need to pick up my target order? And where are we going to go to lunch? And I need to pay that bill before tomorrow. I need to shoot off that email. More consumed with the immediate than the eternal. It's easy, friends, for us to be indifferent to Jesus' return, not because we think it's unimportant, but because we think it's not urgent. And when Jesus returns, it will be a lot like the days of Noah, Jesus says, and a lot like the days of Lot in which things went on as usual and every day looked like the day before until in both cases, all of a sudden, everything changed. This leads us to the second warning that Jesus gives. It's a warning about preparation. A warning about preparation. We are called by Jesus to prepare now for Christ's return because there will not be time later. Much like the siren that calls us to head to our tornado shelter because there there won't be maybe another chance. This call from Jesus Christ to us this morning is a call to prepare now because there may not be time later. We may not even get to our cars today before Jesus Christ returns. And to which we who love Jesus should say, yes, come Lord Jesus quickly. Verse 31, on that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. When Jesus returns, there will not be time to get our affairs in order. Just like the farmer can't go back to the barn and the man working on his roof can't go down below to grab some things. But these verses aren't just about showing us that there won't be time. I think Jesus is also showing us that there won't be a place. There will not be a place for half-hearted followers. For the one who who hears and sees Jesus' return and in that moment think, oh, but you know what, I really, like, I have something else I want to take care of. I have something I want to go get. I have something I want to go back and accomplish. It could be that the man won't be able to come back from his field because there won't be time, but it could also be that there won't be a place for those who want to go back. There won't be a place for those who do not receive this news as at last (sighs) Christ has returned. And that at least as much is clear from this reference to Lot's wife. I mean, you might remember in Genesis 19, she was so close. She heard the, the two words, the word of warning and the word of hope, the word of shelter. She might have been there when Lot was pleading with his sons-in-law, please, judgment is coming. Leave. Avail yourself 
of this warning and avail yourself of the shelter of the, of the rescue that, that God has provided for us. She might have been there even as they laughed in their father-in-law's face. And she was certainly there as, as together they, with their children, left the city of Sodom and passed through the gate and began the journey on up the hillside. And she was so close, she looked back. She couldn't let go of the things of this world. She couldn't let go of the old life. She still looked back with longing, hoping to save some of what was back there. And Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life, to hang on to that, hang on to the old life, will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus says, if we hold on too tightly to our lives, to the things of this world, we will lose them. This is ultimately about our affections, the things we love. And the warning is that we not hold on too tightly to the things of this world, to the things that are not eternal. It could be a possession, it could be a promotion, it could be some sort of status that we're aiming at, it could be our our image, it could be comfort. Anything that we place ahead of Jesus in our desires. And Jesus is crystal clear. If you hold on to those things, thinking that they will satisfy for eternity, thinking that they will save you, in the end, you will find out that they do not. And it will tragically be too late. Like, I wonder, if we could travel back in time, if we could live the day before the flood came in Noah's day. Knowing then what we know now, how would we live? If we could go back and live the month or the year before the flood came, and like Noah was our neighbor down the street, but we knew then what we know now, how would we live? How would we think about our money? How would we think about our time and about relationships? What would we value? What would we love? What would we pursue? And so friends, why would we not live any differently today? Knowing right now what is to come tomorrow. Third warning and the final warning here is a warning about separation. A warning about separation. We should understand the sudden separation that Christ's return will bring. Look at verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. They said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus is continuing to warn. He's the siren continuing to go off, warning us about his return, warning so that he might prepare us so that we would be ready. And here, he's stressing the separation that his return will bring. Like People will be going through their normal routine, sleeping and grinding grain, and one will be taken and one will be left. One will be judged and another will be saved. One will lose his life and one will save his life. And there may not be a lot of marked 
superficial, external differences between those who are taken and those who are left, those who are judged and those who are saved. Like when Jesus returns, we may all be surprised by those who are saved and by those who are not. I think there's also the truth here that proximity to someone who is saved, closeness to someone who is saved, will not help us when Jesus returns. Like just because your parents are Christians, just because your spouse is a Christian, or your children are Christians, or your business partner is a Christian, or you attend a Christian church, or you attend a Christian university or a Christian school, it will not save you and it will not save me. Only by turning to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin are we saved. And what about the vultures there in verse 37? I'm not really sure. So let me give you the best shot from studying this week. There seems to be some evidence that there was a well-known proverb in Jesus' day about where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We know what it's like if you've ever been outside much or lived on a farm or grew up in the plains. Like You know if you see vultures circling in the air, you know that there's probably some sort of dead animal. We have a, an expression today that says, if there's smoke, there's fire. If you can see smoke from miles away, you know, okay, somewhere there's a fire. Probably just follow the trail, and, and there's a fire there. I think the point is this. When Jesus returns, it will be obvious, and it will include judgment. Like There will be many who celebrate Jesus Christ's return. And tragically, there will be many who realize to their horror that the world is not going to continue tomorrow as it has today. Things are forever different. So friends, we should hear Jesus' warning to us this morning and not ignore it. Not hear the siren and then jump on our phone and go out and open the door and stand at the front door looking at the sky thinking, when I see the funnel cloud begin to form, when I see destruction beginning to come, then I will take shelter. Jesus says, you don't have that time. And we have no idea no idea. That's the point. Jesus says, I don't even know. Only the Father who is in heaven when that will happen. But we do know that in that moment, there will not be a second chance. So we, we fully believe here at CCF that salvation is the work of God as he softens hearts through his Holy Spirit and opens eyes to see our need and the glory of God and our own sin and inability to save ourselves and the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we do our very best to never play on emotions or scare tactics or anything. But the reality is that Jesus here is warning us so that we might be prepared. So that no one on the day when Christ returns is, can say, oh, I didn't know this was coming. And so I would just plead with you, if you are not prepared, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, why not? 
turn and trust by faith in him today? If you have questions about that, if you're like, I'm not really sure. I want to talk to somebody. I want to pray with someone. Reach out to anybody you saw on the platform this morning. Seek us out. Talk to someone sitting around you. I can guarantee that there is someone in the three or four or five people sitting around you that would love Like, it would make their month to talk to you today about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come and find me or Pastor Matt or somebody else. We should not ignore this warning. Rather, we should run to the shelter of the cross of Jesus Christ and to the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness found in him. We should run to the only ark of rescue from the coming storm, who is Jesus. Thankfully, he has given us two words, a word of warning and a word of hope, a word of shelter. So if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, I want to encourage three things. First, I want to encourage you to rest in him. I want you to encourage you to rest in him. And I want to encourage you to allow that truth to fuel a lifestyle of worship. And then third, I want to challenge you to speak the gospel message and the gospel hope and the gospel truth to people this week, to someone this week. Pray that God sends someone in your path this week who needs to hear today who needs to hear, to whom you can share this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the ark of salvation in Jesus Christ is strong and it is sure and he will see us faithfully from the already of the kingdom to the fulfillment of the kingdom, to his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would do, once again, what only you can do. First, for those who are here and are not trusting in you, that you would reveal the need of salvation and the glory of who you are and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. those who are not currently trusting in you would turn by faith and trust in you as as their only hope of salvation, not trusting in you and in their good works and in their good deeds and, 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 but only in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ that we would rest in you and that would fuel our worship of you and that we would be vocal to share this good news that you have warned us of judgment, but you have also provided salvation to all who believe. And the salvation you provide will accomplish its purpose to bring us from the already of the kingdom to the fulfillment of your glorious kingdom, to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.